Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey, don't forget to check out the Pacific War Podcast week by week in association with Kings and Generals. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Hello there. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. I'm joined here yet again by my friend, Ian. Welcome. Hello, everyone. And as you uh, probably know from whatever I title this, this episode is going to be something along the lines as to why is the war in Europe during World War II more popular than the Pacific War? Or better said, why is the Pacific War overshadowed by the war in Europe? Now, um, I imagine there's a, the majority of the audience is probably American. So they're probably saying, what are you talking about? Because, you know, for America, arguably, they'll be the ones that hear the most about the Pacific War, even more than anyone from Japan, because Japan is kind of low key hiding this information from the public (laughs) at this point. But uh, I think it goes without saying that most people know it is kind of the truth that the Pacific War simply, I mean, 20 years after the event was only when I think a lot of stuff was actually written in red. There was a lot of stuff written immediately after the Pacific War, but it wasn't necessarily read by many people and at the at that time like it was considered a a very brutal conflict and most people were trying to forget yeah it goes out saying the veterans didn't if you compared veterans from the europe theater and the pacific theater the veterans from the pacific theater were not talking they did not want to relive the horrors that was what was the most brutal war anyone has ever faced almost i don't know like how many ones yeah i mean vietnam is pretty bad too but uh Pacific War is specifically pretty bad. Yeah. And uh, I knew when we were going to tackle this topic, which is uh, a question given to me probably by, I think it was someone from Kings and General's audience. Um, I have a long list of questions to tackle, and that's kind of the purpose of these podcasts is to really get into the, the nitty gritty stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was thinking, how the hell are we going to do this? Because it's going to yeah. be all over the place, obviously. Another but one like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I thought I would make like 10 pointers and we kind of tr- try and keep within that subject matter. So we're going to see what it, where this goes. But we are honestly, when it comes to these episodes, we're really shooting from the hips. Uh, yeah. It's not scripted or anything like uh, Pacific War week by week podcast I do with Kings. But uh, yeah. So the first point I wrote down, which I think was the most obvious. Uh, the Pacific War involved less players than the yeah. war in Europe. I think. Yeah, that's something that I, I was thinking about. Like when you consider the, the European theater how many nations involved, uh, like even just the axis itself, like you had uh, Romania, Italy, Germany, uh, Bulgaria, all working together, like in the Pacific, there's Japan. I mean, technically Thailand is their ally, technically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, you have your your Western powers, the allies, like like you said, a lot more players, like in the Pacific theater, who did you have available there was obviously the states uh anzac yeah anzac uh your new zealanders and australians india burmese uh, british there uh china the dutch (laughs) i think we should probably name china first uh (laughs) Uh, of course (laughs) yes yes. but uh yeah i mean it's not like there isn't a lot of players but when you consider europe yes there, there simply is more players and uh what is it someone told me once uh Someone was trying to explain to me the analytics of history on YouTube. And when I was talking about some American history, he said, 
you know what? History is Eurocentric. Mostly history's the interest level is for Europeans. So Europeans yeah. are the ones who are more interested in history than anyone else, which is a surprise to me. I thought Americans would always be like the top dogs when it came to wanting to learn history, but uh, it's a selective yeah. community, I guess. Yeah. Like, like I was saying earlier, um, it's a brutal conflict and not a lot of people want to talk about that or think about stuff like that. Yeah. And as a historian, it's very, very important to disassociate yourself from the emotion, from the, um, the events themselves, yes, uh, they can be barbaric, but it is our responsibility to to study and record and talk about it. Yeah, and uh, we're both Canadians, and I, I think any Canadian will tell you who knows anything about history. If you say the Pacific War, they're going to say, oh, well, Pearl Harbor and the Battle of Hong Kong. That's about all you would hear. Maybe Midway. Oh, well, yeah, Midway has become extremely popular yeah. since. Well, thanks to, you know, popular media, the yeah. movie coming out. Uh, before that, I don't think most people the average person knew what midway was it's hard to say i think in the 60s there the, was a movie in the try 60s. to ask somebody about like the battle of letty gull and, like, oh, <laughs> no one, that? No one and that is the largest naval battle yeah. in human history yeah you could like when it comes like i'm not to belittle midway but battle naval battle guadalcanal santa cruz yeah. like letty gulf these are much more intense kind of yeah. like insane battles but no one you know really talks or knows about them because you kind of well it's a niche i guess it is a niche topic to know mm -hmm. stuff about the pacific war like that i mean if you were to ask someone uh an Atlantic battle in World War II. I don't think many would know anything else than the hunt for the Bismarck. Or... They would probably go straight to the Bismarck. Um, Turpitz, maybe. That's about uh, it. Even Turpitz? Most people don't even know what that ship is. Yeah, pretty um, much. Maybe, you know, the U-boat campaigns, uh, yeah. the Battle of the Atlantic there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so that was like point number one. I think that was the easiest one to get out of the park is kind of the obvious one that more people know about the European theater because there's a lot more Europeans reading history and looking at that. Yeah. I mean, if we were to ask uh, someone from China, of course, they'd be like, the Pacific War is not just the most important thing. It's like the most important thing to the fabric of the society because it made China. Yeah. It really started the Civil War after and everything, so it's intertwined. If you ask people from Japan, uh, especially school kids in high school, I would say they probably wouldn't know much because as far as I've been told and I've taken some courses at university, Japanese programs in high school they're not they really de-emphasize the war occurring at all it's like they'll teach the history up to 37 or 31 and then they'll gloss through it and get right back out and then keep keep going so yeah. are we the baddies <laughs> well it's uh it's unpleasant and, and it's you know it's a matter of perspective to the japanese citizen it's like okay we had no choice we had to uh do these things but and they still have that sticky issue of apologies which yeah kind like i there was an effort kind of made but they still haven't officially really apologized anyways that's a can of worms you don't want to get into yeah it, it, that could go so uh, somewhere like yeah. uh the second reason i put on this list and i think it's arguably the number one we've already said it yeah it's uh the brutality of the yeah. pacific war in comparison to uh, the war in Europe, not not to say that there wasn't brutality in the European on the Eastern topic, Front, like between, sure. yeah, yeah, Eastern Front, yeah, Russia absolutely. and uh, Germany, like they were doing some terrible, horrific things to each oh, other. Yeah. Um, but in the Pacific, that was a daily occurrence. I mean, it's it's apple, it's it's a case of apples and oranges. Uh, I, I think you you can can like we said, the Eastern Front between the Russians and the Germans. You can compare that actually to the Pacific well, all, War. All but... war is hell. There, all there's war no doubt hell. about that. 
but there's many campaigns in the Pacific theater that were considered the definition of hell on earth. Because, you know, you weren't just fighting the enemy, you were particularly fighting uh, disease and starvation yeah. in the islands. It, unbelievable. I, I was looking at the stats for that, and it was almost like like 60% more casualties from disease and the starvation and the uh, dehydration compared to like battlefield wounds and yeah. and mortal injuries if you take the japanese into account yeah. it's the majority yeah for, for them like their yeah. uh their casualties from disease and that was much more atrocious than uh, uh the allied powers speaking of starvation if you take a look at something like the new guinea campaign oh, or, okay also, so that that is considered the <laughs> absolute hell on earth yeah, New Guinea New was Guinea. called Green Hell, and Guadalcanal by the Japanese was called the Island of Death by Starvation mm-hmm. by Sadio Suzuki. He was a, I think he was the guy who coined it. He was a not an officer. I think he was a private. He served a. He fought. I think he was trying to attack Henderson Field, if I'm not mistaken, in Guadalcanal. Anyways, he was one of the guys who came up with the term Island of Death by Starvation, which rings true because uh, not sure if he was part of the group, but. After trying to attack Henderson Field at one point, Guadalcanal, a group of Japanese had to retreat into the jungles and they were carrying some bodies of allies with them to basically chop pieces off their legs to eat because they had been starving. They literally had no food for weeks. Yeah, the cannibalism took took, like a a new turn at that point. Like it became quite frequent. Uh, especially amongst the Japanese, like not so much from the allies. Uh, uh, but yeah, when like you have an entire army and they're starving and it's like you have an, all the, the allied dead in front of you and it's either you're all going to die or start eating the enemy. And Well, I, uh, I tried to find something to talk specifically about the cannibalism because I'm sure the audience wants a... Yeah, this is just an example of how brutal Japan like the the pacific war was in comparison and i don't think people want to know this yeah what just to to emphasize that this isn't kind of like a small scale issue here was a note signed by major general tachibana and it read order regarding eating flesh of american flyers so this would have been downed american pilots number one the battalion wants to eat the flesh of the american aviator lieutenant hall Number two, First Lieutenant Kanamuri will see to the rationing of this flesh. Number three, Cadet Sokahabi will attend the execution and have the liver and gallbladder removed. As if it's an animal that they're courting. Yeah, that's uh, uh, some stuff. Hard to imagine. Yeah. yeah. And uh, a rather famous officer, Siji, who was in Malaya uh, overseeing the great invasion with Yamashita, who uh, hated him, he had something to say uh, about cannibalism because he was one of the crazier ones in the Japanese military. And he had this quote, the more we eat, the brighter will burn the fire of our hatred for the enemy in response to eating the flesh of the allied forces, Australian or American for that matter. So um, there was a lot of moments of desperation where Japanese were forced to do this because they were sent on islands with no, no supplies because of various reasons could be like allied submarines took out their transports or could be that the uh, imperial japanese navy just simply was screwing with them and did give them the supplies in the first place 
and uh, that kind of disgusting, sh- that kind of disgusting stuff happened. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of people uh, for, for Americans, it's a particularly sensitive topic, but the, uh, the Bataan death march, which is infamous, uh, what happened to the Americans. And I don't know if a lot of Americans know why it occurred in the first place, but a, a large reason why it happened was when they were estimating the amount of prisoners they were going to take in Bataan after taking it, they thought they were taking like 20,000, maybe 3,000 guys. And they ended up having like 70. So they had not enough trucks, not yeah, enough food. You yeah. need a, an entire logistic uh, network to yeah. be able to uh, take care of them. So, and when your own yeah. forces are starving. Exactly. So what ended up happening, uh, of course, there was incidences where Japanese were brutalizing them and killing them, bayoneting them, doing all the terrible things that you've heard in the stories. But a big reason they didn't have the food to spare because they had enormously screwed up their estimations and, an unbelievable of Americans died as a result because of starvation and yeah. well, disease. That, that's also the like a dilemma between uh, the army and the navy. Yeah, because they never saw eye to eye. They never wanted to work together in unison for like a common purpose. And you have the army like requesting uh, troop reinforcements, uh, supplies, um, uh, medicine, and the navy would just be like, "No, we're pissed off with you right now." Uh, uh give us something our way and then we'll we'll let you use our ships and so in the meantime you have the japanese army starving on the island and the the navy thinking that they're winning winning a battle against the army because they really were fighting a war amongst themselves like oh boy yeah i mean it it was like that for all services like in the united states you know you classic example you got douglas macarthur macarthur and king or uh then well nimitz and king i mean king was kind of the over overseer whereas nimitz i think would have spoke more with macarthur in a a lower level well like king and macarthur just classic uh case of like they hated each other uh, who who liked uh, macarthur I think maybe Eisenhower had like a bit because Eisenhower, yes, Eisenhower and uh, MacArthur because they were in uh, the the academy. Yeah, Yeah, they were in the academy together. They were friends from back in the day. And but Eisenhower also said that he had. I think there was like a quote where he's like, "I, I, I didn't learn any military strategy from strategy from MacArthur. I learned (laughs) drama class or something." Like (laughs) Admiral King's counterpart, uh, General uh, Marshall. Yeah. Uh, Oh, this is an example of like army and navy not really getting along uh those two like they worked together they made their operations work but they still hated each other yeah but it i mean it did cause hiccups uh, yeah. when it came to uh, operation cartwheel which became operation watchtower which is Guadal- the guadalcanal campaign they were fighting over the territorial command because ter- technically when they split up these different divisions of the pacific ocean one part of the Solomon Islands was in like MacArthur's spot. And the other part was over for the, for the American Navy and they were squabbling over who got to do what. Yeah. And then there was a, a, a choice where MacArthur would control Naval Marine units. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. know Nimitz never like that. He never liked to have yeah. uh, his troops under uh, uh, MacArthur's uh, command. And MacArthur had been pushing for the longest time that oh, yeah. all Naval assets in his theater would fall under his command and the guy but who shits good on thing, the navy too. good thing yeah he shits on the navy has no respect for them and he's just going <laughs> to use them up good thing for admiral king he never allowed that oh and, it did happen I, he, he got he, yeah he command, had to concede, he had to concede some yeah he got command over them i think uh when they landed on the beaches he got to control them for a certain point yeah. and then it fell to the navy and then the, and then they squabbled over who got which islands yeah. like you know macarthur got new guinea basically and they got most of solomon's you know uh cape Oyster, uh, yeah. and all that 
But uh, I mean, we, I actually we just merged two points because my next point yeah. was going to be the starvation. But uh, to talk more about the brutality, um, we, I guess we tend to think about the island warfare the most because yeah. well, we, it was an island hopping campaign. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's two, arguably there's like kind of like two stages of the island hopping. There was for most of the war, there was the same tactic where they'll go onto an island like um, any anywhere in Guadalcanal, Solomon Islands, and as soon as they go on the beaches, they're met with like ferocious attacks yeah bayonet charges like unbelievable like they're being hit right at the beaches yeah and it was it was really bad and then they're not easy landings on these uh beaches you have to get through like the uh, coral reefs the coral reefs yeah raised coral uh uh there were many obstacles put in the way like uh, the most popular example of an amphibious landing is obviously d-day uh yeah you know with the success of pro uh uh, saving Private Ryan, everyone has an idea what it looks like, but That's imagine true, from yeah. the Japanese uh, um, defensive strategy of raising these atolls, putting uh, obstacles everywhere, entire bunker complexes, waiting for the troops to get onto mm-hmm. the, the beaches, move in just a little bit into that kill zone where it's just everything is focused yeah. on it. And But I'll call that phase one. So during the island hopping warfare, as the war got progressively worse and worse and worse for the Japanese and they got closer and closer to the home on islands at the last leg of it suddenly officers who were in charge of uh, certain commands changed tactics um I think uh, I'm gonna mistake his name I read his book Yachihiro Omahara or something I think that was his name he was not in charge of Okinawa's entire command he was a lower ranking officer mm-hmm. but he happened to be the guy who wrote and he was working under some of the uh, generals who ended up killing themselves. So he did kind of become the guy in command and he advocated and others like-minded like him for a war of attrition instead of attacking at the beaches. Wasn't it also that the, the emperor had told the, the Japanese on Okinawa, there is no surrender there. You will absolutely hold this, uh, this Mm. territory. These are part of the home islands. You cannot give them up. Yeah. So the Japanese forces, fought to the last man almost yeah oh yeah it's, like, it's the bloodiest of yeah. all the battles very desperate it's uh, the situation extreme, uh, yeah. uh, because they knew like there was no ships coming in to like bring them off and to fall back or anything there was some kamikaze attacks on mm-hmm. some of the american ships and there was it didn't work no. too much i mean they actually got a lot of hits but anyways but uh, okinawa was the most extreme version of what became kind of uh, a change in tactics for the japanese so uh, you see it in Peleliu and iwo jima and stuff too but instead of hitting the americans right at the beaches they began to build fortifications and defense in depth in the islands so they al- allow the americans to, to land and they allow the americans to come further inland and then they had built these intricate tunnel networks yeah that just allowed them to perform like guerrilla warfare. The, those bunker complexes, yeah. like digging out entire mountains yeah. and the old uh, mines and stuff. Yeah. You would have uh, the the U.S. Navy, like and Air Force, uh, uh, U.S. Naval uh, air assets at the time, uh, just bombarding these positions for like two, three weeks at a time, thinking and, they got yeah, most of them. Nothing yeah. can survive that. We've just like taken a, a jungle island, and now is it's a desert nothing can survive that but they're so deep in these rock mountains it didn't do a thing casualties were low and then all of a sudden they still have all their defensive network all their artillery and uh machine gun hornet nests yeah that was i think in Pella, that was one of the cases where they had bombarded they bombarded the hell out of it and they thought man we must have weakened them and it was such a shock when they uh, showed up that basically 
nothing had really been hit. But uh, to, to give some of the numbers, because Okinawa is the most extreme yeah. example, and I had to look it up. Oh, God. One of the bloodiest battles, the American total losses for the Battle of Okinawa was more than 12,000 killed and 36,000 wounded, which is outstanding for uh, that many deaths. Mm-hmm. It's happened to the Americans. These Americans usually don't lose too much when it comes to these. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Navy suffered 5,000 killed, approximately 8,000 Army and Marine deaths. In it's total. a lot for the Navy, too. Yeah. Kamikaze attacks sank around 30 ships in Okinawa. This is um, this is more killed than Pearl Harbor. Yep. And Naval-wise. Uh, I mean, a lot of ships were hit, too. They damaged, well, 10 battleships were hit, 13 fleet and escort carriers. Like, a lot of kamikaze attacks. It was atrocious. So, overall, I want to look for the Japanese... The Japanese losses are the ones that are pretty eye-opening. They suffered 107,539 killed. Wow. And it was estimated about 24,000 were lost after being sealed in the caves. So those yeah. cave systems we're talking about. It's more Japanese prisoners taken in this battle than any other in the Pacific War. But then again, it was kind of a special case scenario. It was the last big island that was going to get hit. And uh, the one I always love to talk about the most is when it comes to Okinawa, the civilian. So I was about to say the civilian population. Because Okinawans were not. Uh, what Part you, of Japan, but, but not, not considered, yeah. you know, Japanese. You can almost uh, consider them like a, I don't want to say an indigenous group, but to, to the Japanese, they weren't considered full Japanese. Yeah. They would have been like the Taiwanese to the Japanese. They would have been similar. They would view them the same way they would have seen the Taiwanese. Like Taiwanese to the, the Chinese. Well, the Japanese were holding Taiwan at this point. Okay. Yeah, for, for now, well, yeah. now it's a whole different thing. Yeah. But yeah, so a uh, hundred and this kid, my God, is this right? One hundred forty thousand Okinawans were killed. My, I God. can, I can see that. I can... and that is because you think uh, about they're they're trying to rate like raise these defensive networks to the ground. The the civilian population is not inside these bunkers they're outside in their villages they're they're well, some cities. of them eventually go in the caves and they end up suffering with the rest of them and uh unfortunately a lot of the okinawans well where they were told the propaganda the same that any japanese soldier was told that uh, americans don't take prisoners they're going to kill you you know just kill yourself blah 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 and it, it did happen unfortunately and uh, another thing to raise the uh, the brutality scale, I got a quote from John Toland, kind of the, one of the grandfathers of the uh, Pacific War books. And he had to say for about brutality, brutality was a daily event for the Japanese soldier. He had to admit brutality against himself by his officers. This treatment he simply gave further to his subordinates or the prisoners, the last because they were inferior to him after they surrender. Surrender simply was not existing to him because he fought to the last drop of blood. When he was captured, after all, because of a wound or weakness, then this was dishonor until his life's end. Wow. To counter that, I got a little quote from a Japanese newspaper to kind of give it some more credence uh, from April of 1942. It's from the Japan Advertiser, which was edited even in English, apparently. And in its introduction, it wrote uh, about the Allies. The Allied surrender, the Allies, I guess it would mean, the Allies surrender only when they have sacrificed all lives in their power, excluding their own. When they finally surrender themselves, they only save their own lives. 
They have shown in all previous battles that they are totally egoistic. With their behavior, they have reached that we can treat them not as normal prisoners. They have broken God's law, and therefore God will punish them with defeat. However, any mercy would prolong the war. The Japanese soldier fights a holy war in which there is no place for thinking over any uncertainty. Criminals must be annihilated. Wow. So it gives you kind of like a, a flavor or a taste of what both sides are, are engaging at right now <laughs> in the Pacific War. But uh, the brutality, um, uh, it goes without saying, just in the Japanese military structure, I mean, the high-ranking officers abuse officers. And then it was that trickle-down effect. Yeah, trickle-down pecking All the order. way down to the, the lowly private, and then the, the private beats and rapes the civilian population or yeah. the POWs, POWs that they capture. Yeah. Uh, like, U.S. history is usually more widely regarded but in this theater we have to remember anzac and the australians because they yeah. uh they suffered some of the most brutal treatment at the hands of uh the japanese well i think if you if you had to give it and, a... and vice versa because like it was uh you know like the japanese would do it to them and then they felt obligated in return no prisoners uh mutilation of uh, the enemy if you had to give it a tier list i i guess i would rank uh, the chinese the worst uh for getting absolutely barbarity placed upon them by the japanese mm -hmm. and uh particularly i guess ever i mean it's pretty popular to talk about the rape in Nanjing. so but is china and that part of the theater considered the pacific war or is the pacific uh, if you war... ask an american they might not say so but i consider there is like an understanding that the pacific war is from the western powers and their encroachment on Japan. No, you can't the because there's an ongoing war in China the whole time. That's I know, why I've never like I've never taken that route to thinking about it because it's so odd to me that you don't start particularly like you should start in 37 the, the, to to take the second Sino-Japanese war and place it out of context with what's going on with the allies 41 afterwards doesn't make sense like the whole Doolittle raid. When the Doolittle mm. raid occurs and they try to fly over China the impact on what happens to the Chinese because of that is enormous. Yeah. The, the Japanese went wow. hog wild killing all the Chinese civilians yeah. they could, trying to figure out who built these little airfields for them to land on and Project uh, Operation Ichigo and everything. It's terrible. So I think I mean, you that, have to talk about that campaign of, of revenge. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I mean, after the Chinese, I think the second group that gets abused the worst by the Japanese was uh, actually India. Uh, not the Indians that, you know, join the independent India movement to join the Japanese, but the other ones, like, if you ever read Fighting accounts... Fighting in Burma and, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you read accounts from POWs, like uh, Battle of Hong Kong, for example, uh, yeah, the Canadians were treated, like, terror, like really yeah. bad, but the Indians, it's like, without, without even thinking, the uh, Japanese would just bayonet and kill them. Well, I think uh, the first casualties for Canada was at the hands of the Japanese, uh, 1941, like, December... Yeah. December 7th or December 8th uh, was one of the, uh, yeah, the first battles and it was a Canadian regiment and they were basically killed to the last man. Yeah. I mean, if you ask Canadians, that's basically all we know about the Pacific War because that's what we're taught. We were, that was the one thing that we were involved in. I mean, there are Canadian volunteers in other parts of the Pacific War, yeah. but it, the Battle of Hong Kong is kind of like the hill that we died on. It was a little bit like yeah. our Vimy Ridge, I guess yeah. you could say. Uh, my God, there's a lot to say, but it's hard to like. Yeah, keep... we could do a whole podcast of just like the brutality of the pacific war 
the, the next point I brought up is, is actually, it's a similar point. It's that, uh, well, veterans of the Pacific War are a lot less likely to talk about it than veterans from the Europe uh, theater. No. Um, for, for people who are much older than us, uh, if you had been growing up uh, as a teenager, like in the late 40s and 50s, uh, there, there probably was some written material on the Pacific War, but it wasn't that much compared to everything that was coming out about Europe. And um, it wasn't, I, I would argue, it wasn't until Eugene Sludge's uh, With the Old Breed that yeah. it became kind of wide scale uh, knowledgeable because uh, the material that came out about the Pacific War, they held back so Having much. Having those like primary sources, yeah. first hand accounts. Uh... There, I, I, because uh, yeah, there yeah. were a lot less primary sources in the Pacific War, uh, up until like 20, 30 years later. Like they started trickling out, uh, yeah. old uh, veterans like learning to deal with some of their PTSD and just being more communi communicative about it. And yeah, they didn't want to talk. That's no. for sure. I mean, there, there's a it's a strike. There was, I don't have the statistics on me, but I remember seeing once uh, a record of how many accounts were given from uh veterans of the european theater and how many tours and talks and stuff they did compared to the pacific after the war and it's it's jarringly different uh mm. they they really didn't want to relive the the absolute horrors yeah. that they saw and uh, there, i forget who had this quote it was so perfect i wish i wrote the name down but someone explained it because they were asked a question as to i think they were asked this question in the 60s why do we have so much books and and even alternate, you know, alternate history books like Phil K. Dick and all this, like the mm -hmm. Man on Castle, on on the you know the European War and all this, but we don't hear much about the Pacific. And the guy, I think he was a veteran of the Pacific War. He said, "The Pacific War is an ugly war." That's how he termed it. And what he meant was like, it was so brutal, and there was so much messiness about it in terms of like morality, yeah. terms of just pure barbarity and stuff it was not a, it was not a campaign of glory no that's it they said there was no glory. there was a guy who said there's no glory in the pacific yeah. compared to the european theater because if you think about the european theater there's a lot of like different battles and of course there is glory to be had in the pacific it's just it's harder to see through the mess yeah you think about uh like some of the generals involved like from uh just from a western perspective like none of them rose in prominence after these campaigns such as like you have in the, the West, um, the European theater, your, your Patton, your Eisenhower. Uh, I mean, I guess you got Douglas MacArthur. Well, even Douglas MacArthur, sure, he, he he was famous until he messed up the whole Korean thing. Then that he was uh, infamous yeah, well, after that. I'm glad uh, we didn't listen to him yeah. I mean, uh, in Korea. I, I've had comments on my channel from a few, before I was a Pacific War channel, people screaming at me when I uh, wasn't talking enough about, I think, admiral halsey or something because he as as one guy said to me these are staples uh, when yeah. i was growing up these were names that we heard back in the day and i'm like of course of course you, you halsey, heard about them, spruance yeah. uh nimitz uh yeah. uh i think there was a lot more glory to be had for the navy. the u.s navy yeah. absolutely well because the new the the naval battles were probably the only thing people it's true i think someone said we only hear about the naval battles but we weren't hearing about what was happening on the islands you took for the longest yeah. time, they didn't talk about that. And it has to do with the brutality of what they yeah. had seen. The Japanese didn't surrender. They, because of the actions of the Japanese by not surrendering, uh, you know, like you'd, you'd hear all the time from Marines, you know, I went to go check on some corpses and then a corpse came up and yeah. shot at me or threw a grenade at me. So the Americans eventually were just whispering to each other ad hoc style. Don't take prisoners, shoot them. Yeah. The, the escalation of brutality between yeah. the two sides 
uh, like it was one of the the strategies of the Japanese. Yes, we're going to mutilate and kill all POWs that we find. They were they were staking Australians on the path so that the the incoming reinforcements have to walk through that. And well, from their strategy, it was now we know the allies will return that favor do that to us and, and our, our men know that our soldiers yeah. now know there is no, no surrender hope, yeah. there's no like it's it's victory or death it's one of them i forget who uh, uh, it's just like both sides just continuing that that escalation i think hideki tojo had something to play in that where they were they were writing a manual on what to expect from the enemy to their soldiers and it was even in the manual i think it said they're going to do this, 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 and this because you did this, 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 yeah. and this in like China or in some other places in the early part of the war. And they go, you cannot expect them to take you prisoner. They will do horrible torture you, kill you, whatever. Do not surrender. And and you like, because it, it took a long time for people to understand like, why are they acting kind of like quote unquote robots? Like this isn't like they're, they're like the zealots what's going on yeah. there. And it's, Zilas is a good uh, it's word for that. When you're trained uh, to bayonet, like in during training time, to just bayonet a poor Chinese civilian that was captured a POW, and like everyone gets in and bayonets, it's like you realize you're part of this disgusting thing, and you're going to be treated like a monster because you have inadvertently become a monster. And this barbaric treatment, it wasn't reserved just for the Allied soldiers. It was Allied civilians, Allied uh, medical yeah. personnel. I remember hearing about one uh, oh, yeah. uh, incident. There was a um, uh, a medical ship with uh, doctors and nurses, Australian. And I, oh, forget, I yeah. forget where exactly yeah. it was, but it was early on in the war. And the Japanese took, uh, took control of it. Um, killed all the men right away and all the the doctors and then there was all the, the women nurses and after brutally raping them and mutilating them they had them all line up and march into the the ocean and yeah. naked and then they took turns uh target practice yeah so, like that's some some horrific horrific stuff yeah. and i think again like the point that we were trying to make is people don't want to know this no. But as I said, like as a historian, we have the responsibility to pass on this history and not glorify it, but remember it. Well, you're less yeah. lest we forget. You're you're basically you're a detective and you're, yeah. you're it's a crime scene. You're trying to figure out what happened. That's, that's the job of historians yeah. is to take all the different pieces of evidence from whatever different perspectives and to come up with what actually happened. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, it was a horror show, and I mean, <laughs> goes without saying, horror yeah. show indeed. That's why the veterans don't didn't want to talk yeah, about it exactly. Uh, and point number five I made, which is kind of similar to this, uh, I just I guess it's a little bit different. Yeah, this is exactly what we were talking about. The participants involved don't want to remember. Yeah. It's not an easy conversation to to bring up, uh, remembering like these past atrocities and. The, the PTSD from it, it, is, it has to be unimaginable. Yeah. Point number five is similar. It's um, Japan wants to well, simply forget about it. Yeah. And the Americans for a long time didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing we've just been talking about. Uh, I'll say again, in the way that Japan's schooling system has changed recently, there's actually a few conservatives in the political parties that are trying to bring changes to the textbooks and that's a whole other ordeal that i'm not an expert to talk about but mm. I, I know a bit about it but um the idea that uh 
they have basically two approaches to um, talking about it. Number one that's worked the most for them is not talking about it. So they just yeah. simply uh, gloss over the whole World War II and they just don't want to talk about things like the conflict women ig- and stuff. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. The conservatives in Japan, the, the more radical, hardcore right wingers, uh, are trying to emphasize the good that came about it. To give one example, they emphasize that because of the actions of the Japanese, that a lot of Southeast Asian nations got their independence. They broke yeah. the chains of colonialism. Yeah, absolutely broke the chains of colonialism, would not uh, suffer the yokes of Western in, not, tyranny. Not right? just, yeah, tyranny, I was going to say influence, but that's not appropriate. But they also did this by raping and butchering the Southeast Asians. So it's kind of like, it's a little, it, it's, uh, it's a catch 22 when you say it's, that. It's <laughs> something like, you know, trying to find the balance, two sides to a coin. Yeah. It's like, uh, even out of the worst atrocities, there is some good that comes out of it in, in some yeah. sense. It's kind of like saying, well, the Germans helped almost allow the ukrainians to get independence from the soviet union but they did this by butchering and perform you know the einsatz group and did a lot of terrible things in ukraine so it's kind of like you can't really say uh helped an independence movement there yeah <laughs> and uh well that's a can of worms today yeah there's yeah uh, putin saying that the uh, the nazis are in control of ukraine which is yeah and that the ukrainian soldiers are eating uh fallen russian soldiers have you heard and, this i yeah, never heard this I, yeah i was reading uh something like this uh, oh my god just really? yesterday i believe but um, the propaganda okay. that russia is pump, uh, pumping out right now like that ukrainian soldiers are uh torturing and eating and and i'm not uh, i being russian soldiers and no, I'm not ignorant of the Azov battalion for anyone who actually knows about this stuff. Mm. Yeah, it exists, but it's not representative of all the Ukraine. Like it's it's like a small minority of the Ukrainian. Military. We shouldn't get too distracted <laughs> yeah. by like yeah. I, I I know everyone wants to talk about uh, the Ukraine. Oh, the, oh, Ukraine, but... the episode that's going to come out before this one is the Ukrainian thing that I did with Justin. So they got their they got a full full rundown on mm-hmm. our stupidity as to us unexperts talking about that. Yeah. Uh, the next point I wanted to make, which I think it's a uh, it's an interesting point, it's uh, the difference between the European theater and the Pacific theater uh, in terms of morality. Um, when when the allies started to find the concentration camps in Germany, because you know, that story was really late into the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, arguably, I think the Russians would have found them first. And I think Russia did find them first. Yeah. Yeah. They must've been sending the reports yeah. um, that brought on this idea. And I don't know what else to call it. Then this is a good war. This is a justified war yeah. that we are liberators and this is horrifying. And you know, what we're doing is against evil. Like they had a tangible taste that this is evil, but uh, it's an evil ideology. They didn't believe that the German people were evil. That's another thing to bring up later. Uh, When it comes to the Pacific War, it's really messy because as much as the propaganda wanted to say that, oh, they're militaristic, the Japanese, Mm. oh, they're fascist in a a quasi way, even though they weren't really that much. It's not that it doesn't fit that well. Well, they were being conditioned into a, like a military nationalist. Yeah, of course. Point, it's uh, just, it's not identical to what you would see in like Italy and Germany. No, of course not. No, no. But I mean, Tojo was a, he wanted it to be just like, he was an yeah. admirer of Hitler and he loved the fascist regime. But uh, Germany it, it, had Hitler and yeah. uh, Japan had, uh, well, your prime minister, uh, Tojo. Tojo. But then you also had your emperor, your god. 
yeah. your absolute authority, your reason to exist. And if your emperor, your god tells you, you must win this war, you must fight to the last man, like there's no, uh, no argument, no resistance, and you can be very desperate. And, yeah. and if you're pulling off like the, the brutal atrocities that we were just talking about, it's forgiven because it, it's the will of the emperor, it's the will of your god. And when it comes to the issue of morality, and I specifically, I didn't talk about one thing when it came to the brutality, which was like kind of, I think, number two on my list. I was going to leave it for you because you know more mm. about this. When you were talking about the Pacific War, there's a lot of different things about mortality that comes to play. But the one that I think is the most important is the issue of the firebombing campaign. Oh, yeah. Uh, Curtis like, LeMay's. Uh, uh, from the from the Allies. So, you know, like uh, once that american production system was really rolling they were pumping out a lot of long-range heavy bombers and you could uh these aren't naval bombers these are high altitude bombers you can load them up super with 20 fortresses. super fortresses that could fly from one side of the ocean to the other and by and that time they could do yeah. day raids because there's nothing in the sky to didn't, them. didn't even need fighter escorts because there's such a high altitude that no japanese fighter can get up there to get it yeah. and if they do like it's uh you know so they'd be loaded up with like 10 to twenty thousand uh bombs uh twenty thousand pounds of bombs on each of these super fortresses and you would have an entire like armada air wing of 500 to a thousand sometimes like two thousand bombers just go over a city and with high explosive and incendiary bombs just level it and a lot of japanese cities were made of wood and there's no such and they didn't have the same like fire brigade capabilities as like we are used to so once there is a a spark it would go up and they would raise these cities turn them into a blazing inferno and the casualties from these fire bombings were significantly higher than the Nuclear the atomic bombs, yeah. uh, uh detonations which everyone is aware of how how can you ignore a nuke like how can you forget about that and everyone remembers the hiroshima and nagasaki but we have to remember uh, the fire bombings of Tokyo and the, it's the what other, broke that is yeah that Japan. is what broke Japan because they knew that okay it's easier to drop these incendiaries than it is a, a nuclear weapon how many nuclear weapons do they have we're not sure but they're firebombing us night and day and uh, I don't actually know the numbers between uh, the Tokyo firebombing campaign and Dresden but I mean I would off the bat imagine both are horrible they're both horrible i believe it's similar but um to the benefit of dresden there's a lot more stone and and concrete in that city it didn't help because the firebombs you told told me a story about the oven kind of situation because they had their their underground bunker systems uh you know their air raid shelters and the the civilian population would go into the shelters during an air raid the amount of heat that was being generated on top of the city would trickle down like not the fire itself but just the heat and like even worse than an oven basically melted the people inside and uh later on when they're doing the inspections of these these bunkers to see if they're survivors they would just find puddles of leftover human like human sludge yeah human Human sludge. sludge and like that's a fucking it's a 
terrible thing to think about and to imagine. What was the name of the uh, bomber command? Uh, British bomber. Command? Oh, um, British bomber command. Oh, he, he's this, the Curtis um, LeMay of Britain. Yeah, uh, he was not loved after the war. He had he very, was angry about yeah, it. Yeah, he too. was very angry because he, he said did, he won the war and yeah. like that they deserved. But he was being told to do these things, and then after Churchill the war, told him. Yeah, well, Churchill. When Churchill found out, I, I remember hearing the, the story when Churchill found out about what was actually occurring in Dresden, he like had a collapse. He was like, Oh my God, how can we do this? Yeah. But that's what he was told to do. Like, uh, yeah. So to get back to the, these firebombs, uh, like that's how an example of the Dresden firebombing, the, these bunkers, they didn't have, uh, air raid shelters and places for the civilians to go. Like these, firebombs would would drop and like an entire city would oh, be I, I guess the, the audience might not realize this but um uh particularly when it came to firebombing Tokyo so the spread of the fire is all over the city and what ended up happening is um you would leave like the buildings you'd scatter and there would be fire everywhere if you jumped in like local lakes or rivers you'd be boiled alive yeah. because the heat is that much and there was like stories of people just standing upon bridges and waiting to die from just uh, the smoke killing them. Yeah, you couldn't the leave or flee the area. The yeah. smoke, the 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 general heat. Like yeah. yes, there's fire everywhere, but it's also the heat that's coming off of it, and that expands into more areas and just Very, feeds uh, off of itself. And anyone's if anyone wants to see particularly good representations of the horror of this there's like two very um, famous animes uh, graveyard of the graveyard of the fireflies uh which is by gym. um uh what's the company again it's uh, uh company? Oh, um no it's a very very popular you know like uh spirited away uh, uh princess mononake well it's not toho. Um, not toho it's um studio ghibli oh studio yeah ghibli. studio ghibli um uh which is usually like I've met a lot of people who love Studio Ghibli films because it's very. Yeah, well, this is from the eighties. Uh, this is it, like one you know, more... like children love it because they're just great, you know, simple <laughs> animes with like fun fantasy stories. Uh, this one was certainly not. It is a great representation of. It's a must watch. It won, a, yeah. won awards, many awards. Yeah, for, uh, I don't. Even, I think it actually is one of the few animes. It's I've very won, tragic. Uh, a very emotional watch. film to to watch. There's also One Foot Gan, which is uh, it's actually identical almost to it. It's a similar story. I think it's a bit older the anime, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Graveyard of the Fireflies is yeah. a well known one because it's. Oh God! Like, it if you know the story you, of the author, it gives too. a point of view yeah. from the the Japanese civilian population. Uh, uh, in this case, a a young boy and his sister. I, I think they were like seven and five years old, or maybe even a little younger than. I that. don't know if I want to ruin it to the audience, but uh, for those, I, this I don't think this ruins it for those who've seen it because I don't think a lot of people know this. In the anime, he chooses to uh depict himself because he's the boy in it uh dying at the end but he he's obviously not dead but he had lived through this but he's basically saying like he died that day yeah and it's like when you know about the story oh it's so brutal when you know about the yeah. author story it's awful but uh you got a very heartfelt anime that shows that yeah. uh, the only other thing uh on the issue of morality i think everybody knows this was uh, coming uh, the question of the nuclear hits um there's a lot to be said about the uh, the nuclear bombs uh, on the, the politics Nagasaki. behind it. Uh, the argument that it really wasn't for Japan; it was a warning to, to Russia, the Soviets. Yeah, to to yeah. the Soviets. 
Um, a lot of I, I know there's Americans screaming. I'll probably get in the comment section, but uh, a lot of the American audience members, there, there's a lot of information that wasn't made public until the 1990s after Kirikito's death. For example, like um, the Japanese surrender. If you look at the, the time logs between the two bombs, the Japanese were having a meeting after the first bomb hit and they weren't even aware the bomb had hit and they had just been made aware that the Russians had invaded Manchuria. And this was yeah. the most crucial issue that actually resulted in the surrender of Japan because Manchuria was their lifeline. It was the only thing they really had their ha the only cookie yeah. they had left. Yeah. And all of their investments, all of the resources they had was there. And they could not yeah. defend that theater. Oh, it was a stomping ground. Yeah. Like the, the Soviet Union just absolutely ripped them to pieces. The, and then, the, the juggernaut that yeah. was the Soviet army at that point, the Red Army. Does yeah. it mean that the nuclear weapons didn't push them to surrender further? Of course it did. But the idea, for example, that uh, the idea that was always put forward is if if the Americans did not drop the bomb, then Operation uh, was it Operation Downfall it was called, where yeah. the, the invasion of the mainland islands would occur. And it was estimated no. it could have been anywhere between two to seven million U.S. casualties. Oh, yeah. This is honest. You can argue it's an argument. I can't say that I'm unequivocally that this could not happen. But um, even Ian W. Toll, one of the, mm. the authors of uh, the three trilogy, the trilogy books, I I, I was listening Pacific to Crucible, yeah. Conquering Tide. Uh, yeah, Dan Carlin had an interview with him uh, a few months ago, and he asked him that question, and he said without flinching, no. It would never have happened. And I, I am of the same opinion because you have to understand, yes, the, the Japanese were indoctrinated. Oh, oh, they were preparing these bamboo spears. The women and children were going to fight. No, they were done. The firebombing campaign had yeah. killed everything that they were. Broken. They were Broken their spirit. The only thing that the Japanese were doing for months at this time was trying to figure out the best surrender option. And they yeah. knew that they probably needed to surrender. They thought they were going to surrender with the Soviet Union. They thought the Soviet Union would secure the best possible outcome for them. And when Manchuria were more afraid of, yeah, once Manchuria well, happened, they like, were terrified, they were Soviets, terrified they, of the they, Soviets. The Japanese enemy is communism this whole yeah. time, despite the fact they're at war with America. Communism is their number one enemy. Yeah. And when, when Manchuria got invaded, that was, there was zero, there's nothing on the table anymore. They were so screwed. And they were like, well, we are going to literally be occupied by the Russians if we don't jump into the American arms at this point. And yes, the nukes went off. And what did the nukes do? which is a great thing. And it's weird to say this, it stopped the Soviets. They stopped their movements at the midpoint in Korea and stuff. And that's kind of what really happened. And I know it's a, it's a freaking argument. The Americans hate hearing that kind of stuff, no. but yeah. And uh, I'm going to get a lot of bad comments about that. So we'll move on to the next point, yeah. which isn't controversial. The Pacific war is a race war. <laughs> this is a tricky one to talk about and yeah if anyone sound ignorant anyone listens to uh the pacific war week by week with me at kings and generals you already know my whole shtick is to talk about the kind of the issue of race when it comes to this and it's in no ways to uh parallel kind of today's notions of racism and all the silliness that's in politics that's nothing to do with that the pacific war actually was a race war legitimately it, it is, and I, yeah. no one can deny it. Um, the, the the examples of like documented racism from uh, Western powers towards uh, Asian culture at the time. I mean, it it's fluid. It's why did the Japanese start the Pacific War? Because of the racism, basically, yeah, they were it tired came, of yeah. the oppression of yeah. uh, the Western powers. Uh, um, if 
if there was going to be a tyrant in Asia, it would be Asians. Yeah, and they would be the overlords all yeah. over the all the the co the greater co prosperity sphere. The Japanese were going to rule as like kind of the Asian father over all these yeah. other Asian nations in a horrifying. Yeah, of course they uh, situation. Uh, uh, they consider every other Asian nation a inferior, lesser yeah. inferior species. Children. They would they would consider them children, like China, yeah. uh, well Indochina especially. But like yeah. examples from the Western powers, the what they thought of the the Asian nations, they weren't even like considered almost like human. Yellow monkeys. Yellow. The propaganda issues. Like you you whenever uh, I don't think anyone argues against this anymore. Mm-hmm. But if you you take the propaganda that was placed on um, Germany and Italy versus Japan. What you see is characters of Adolf Hitler or Mussolini, and it's pointed towards ideology. They're not like, sure, they'll throw the word kraut now and then. Yeah. But when it's the Japanese, it is simply subhuman apes, yeah. rats. It's not something that has, you don't really have to go into too much depth on this. Like, it's most obvious that the propaganda showcases that there was racist attitudes. But for those who are actually not knowledgeable, I'll, I'll give some kind of um, examples. Uh, particularly when it came to the Battle of Hong Kong, uh, a lot of the British officers told Canadian officers things like the Japanese will not attack at night, particularly the pilots, because they can't see well at night because their eyesight, their nearsightedness. Oh boy, did they learn their lesson about yeah, it's that. It's ironic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're prone to seasickness because, and I, I am not kidding. Prone to seasickness, the most powerful Navy in the world yeah. at that time. The, the rationale for this was given by a guy who was a quote-unquote like neurosurgeon at the time um, because the ch- Japanese children were brought up on their mother's backs when they were rice picking in the field. It knocked around their brain a bit, making them unable to develop properly, and they were prone to seasickness. I've, li- I've read this account. Mm. It's like unbelievable. There's much more than this. Uh, what, what else is there? There's so many funny ones. The Japanese... Um, well, oh, they won't fight at dawn or during sunset with the with their airplanes because they can't see too well which is the obvious one right because they're squinty eyed uh, yeah stuff like that oh uh oh they can't develop technology all they do is copy our stuff and not very well Uh, yeah that was oh did they learn their lesson on that well i mean like yes they they yeah that is how the the japanese navy came into existence existence, into being they they took what they were learning from the british and the french and uh after having them contracted to build their ships and then they're they're just watching the entire time learning and then they start building their own and like okay we didn't like this about the british ships we didn't like this about the french and they approve on it and then start coming up with their own uh designs and that and they came out with superior vessels to anything that was available at the time you compare like american cruisers to japanese cruisers in 1942 there's no argument what is the the better ship Mm mm-hmm and uh, I think uh, the funniest thing is a lot of the, the racial attitudes that the Allies had, and it's not exclusive to Americans, by the way, it's very much in the mindset of the British. Yes. The British oh, are yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. The idea that the Japanese... Everyone's guilty in this, uh, this right. argument. Canadians yes. too. Yeah. Uh, the attitude that the Japanese would be bad in both night fights on, in, on naval ships, in the air as pilots, and on the ground was so funny because the Japanese chose to specialize in fighting at night on naval ships, fighting at night with their airplanes, and doing night raids as infantry. That's one of the most ironic twists of the Pacific War is that the Japanese became known for fighting at night. The naval yeah. battle of Guadalcanal, Excelled Mighty at. Gulf. Oh my god, did they uh, devastate the um, uh, the Anbu Navy 
at that time like <laughs> and like the and then people are like oh you're just the audience members you're like oh, you're just poking jokes at like the racial stuff and this that the thing is you have to remember the the hq the general command would say this stuff to their officers during the battle of hong kong uh multi told a lot of people that oh don't worry about the japanese coming over the uh the little channel here into hong kong island they can't do it at night he told his men that like people like this like in high command would say this stuff and they would believe him and then the japanese yeah. snuck up it was and they attacked absolute ignorance yeah and like this stuff no, like, out, like yeah. the this blatant like disrespect for your enemy and like that's like rule number one in don't warfare. underestimate your enemy yeah but when it came to the Japanese, like you see this in the Malaya campaign, my God, the British underestimated the Japanese capability, like 4C, Prince yeah. of Wales and that. Like, look, the yeah. arrogance of them going out the way they did, thinking they were, anyways, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Prince of Wales and the repulse. Uh... <laughs> it's like, it's, and it, they got, they got the bloody nose that they needed to wake up yeah. and realize, oh, so the Japanese are actually good pilots, despite all of our officers telling her they, they, they can't even fly well. I remember there was a there was a Japanese guy that was sent. I don't know if it's Fuchida. He was sent to go watch the Battle of Britain, and when he came back to talk to uh, the Japanese high command, he was like, "The Germans are not very good pilots, and the British are worse." That was what he came back with after watching up close and, and you know personally the Battle of Britain. And I mean, uh, different aircraft. Well, the different the training regimen for the Japanese pilots at that time was intense, uh, yeah. very intense. The like, Kido Butai, like, like the, these, the was, it, there yeah. was no argument. These are the best pilots in the world. Yeah, and they could like do the diving. thing, the rigors that they had to go through to become fully fledged pilots. It, it, it's almost a nightmare. And uh, oh my god, uh, I have to bring this up. And people who've uh, who are veterans in my channel know this one. Uh, the number one indicator that uh, the Pacific War was a race war. I think this is the greatest example. You don't see many German skulls going home in the mail, or Italian skulls. Human trophy taking in the Pacific War, uh, which happened in the Vietnamese War too, uh, later on a little bit, is kind of uh, it's, a, it's a niche specialty that mm. was found here. Uh, for those who don't know, um, the Americans and the, and the Australians, I believe, too, had a practice of taking skulls, uh, gold teeth, uh, fingers, hands, and shipping it home to their girlfriends. This was the the escalation of brutality yeah. uh, between the two. FDR got, I think it was a, a bone pen given to him or something wow. famously, and he kept it. And uh, it was not like everybody did this, but the acknowledgement that this did not happen much, I, I if think at all, in the, Europe. The trophy taking in Europe would be like keeping your eye out for uh, a Luger. Oh, or, yeah, of course. Band of Brothers, it was always, yeah. I'm going to get my hand on those Lugers. Yeah, everyone wanted a Luger. But uh, in the Pacific War, and it's actually a problem to this day, uh, the Japanese families uh, have been asking for some of these souvenirs, as you call them, to be brought home. Because there's people to this day that have these skulls actually lying around in their, their houses in America and other places. And uh, it's an untalked about thing. There's a famous Time, I think it's Time or Life magazine photo of a woman and she's looking at a skull on her desk and her boyfriend had sent it to her as a souvenir, a Japanese skull. Wow. And you can see there's photos you can check online because they'll get demonetized if I show them of like mm. boil, how to boil a head to get the skull and how to do this and that. Eugene Sledge's book with the old breed, he, he spoke about 
a guy he saw ripping a gold tooth out of a dying Japanese guy. I mean, this this happened. And did, uh, maybe maybe this happened in Europe. I doubt many times. Uh, I mean, in the, definitely, in I the Eastern Front, plucking, maybe. Plucking gold teeth, absolutely. In the Eastern Front, I, mm-hmm. I probably. But uh, it, it, you have to admit, there's a flavor there. And to... Just for anyone who doesn't think that there that racism played a crucial role in the Pacific War, it it did, and it's yeah. it's that it's, reason why it's, it's not a, talked about. A very unfortunate period in human mm-hmm. history. And the only reason we're bringing this up is the whole point of the episode is why is it being overshadowed or not talked about? And this is another. It's like a I, a guilty thing that's part of it that people don't want to acknowledge or talk about. I think that that point you made earlier that the Pacific War is an ugly war. Yeah. It is where uh, Europe was, you know, fighting for justice and, and uh, liberation. And and uh, I, I got in a lot of flack before I was the Pacific War Channel. I actually made an episode on human trophy taking and I, excuse my French, I, je mange la merde. I ate a lot of shit because I talked about the human trophy taking by particularly American Marines. And I'm not here to be like, oh, America, bad, no. Japanese, good. Like, no, it's... We're not taking sides. No. Uh, they we're not on the Western uh, point of view. We're not Japanese point. Uh, like, uh, There's no sides. This yeah. war is a disgusting it thing is. and disgusting things happens. And the Japanese... And if, hey, you want to play a game, who is the worst? Yeah, of course the Japanese are the worst. Yeah, Unit 731 freezing the arms off of women civilians in China and giving them syphilis and doing all sorts of experiments. Like, there's a ton of horrible shit I could say about what the Japanese did. The cruelty is, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, the the, the cruelty is hard to talk about sometimes. And, like, as a historian, we have to disassociate ourselves from that emotion. And I I will straight up tell everybody here. person who works in animation at kings and generals found some footage from unit 731 that i had never seen in my life of an actual female civilian getting her arm frozen solid and broken with a hammer like something at a snowpiercer see i don't think people want to know that and if you yeah i will never you know you will not hear from me that the japanese were not the worst in this war when it came to doing war crimes and horrible stuff so when i bring up the whole human trophy thing you know take it with that knowing that i'm not poking fingers at anybody here i'm just saying it does indicate that there was a racism element to this war yeah okay well let's go to a lighter subject yeah i i think we were uh, a little heavy on that one and number eight people have a hard time with the geography I, I sure. think it goes without saying that yeah. Europe it's Europe's yeah. just easy to figure out. Okay, here's France, here's Germany, you know, here's Belgium. Unless Italy. you are actually from um, Southeast Asia, mind you. Of course, we're being asshole yeah. Westerners that you, but it, it's also know. an island hopping campaign and it's a lot of islands. And if you remember where exactly in the Pacific that uh specific island is, like uh, where is Guadalcanal on a map? Where yeah. do you, is do you where know is New Guinea? Do you where know where Christmas Island, Island is? Uh, I can't say like if I were if you put so, a map in front of me and find it exactly, exactly. in five it's, seconds. No, uh, I mean for people who live in the Southeast Asia or in the Pacific, of course, this is your geography. But for mm-hmm. the majority of readers in like the United States, Canada, Western Europe, they would have absolutely no idea. You no. say Guadalcanal to someone back then, they'd be like, "What is a Guadalcanal?" Yeah. So it goes without saying that geography actually, it played a role. Yeah. It, it really, uh, it hindered people wanting to know. Um, 
I know a lot about the second Sino-Japanese war and what happened in like the East coast of China. I doubt any, like not many people outside of China really knows much about that. And it's, it's a very hard geography. It's, it's really Chinese, Chinese geography is actually quite difficult and you have to, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with it now. I'm uh, doing a whole project. <laughs> on, so, nah. you know, it, it, it has a, it has a role to play. I, I think uh, a lot of the, English speakers were the ones reading a lot of the materials about World War II. Well, geography and... can be tough for for most people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a it's a lot to remember. It's a... my uh, my fiance is an engineer, and she has no idea where. Oh my god, what was it? We were playing some game. She didn't know where um, Lebanon was in the Middle East, and I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" Anyway, mm-hmm. sorry, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, number nine, I threw this in as a really random one. I was really struggling to find anything else. And I thought it was kind of, maybe it had an influence on this. Uh, the Europe first strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that it had some butterfly effect long-term when it came to thinking about this, because since the emphasis was placed on, on Europe so much during yeah. the war itself, it kind of, I, I assumed in looking at like the news reports in the 40s when the war was going on, I mean, they probably were emphasizing more of what was going on in Europe. So I think it's so facto. I Ab- think, yeah. Absolutely. Um, maybe a naval battle or two, but the, uh, the US was taking a lot of casualties in the Pacific and you don't want to put that in your newspaper. Well, I would say the majority of their casualties had to come from the Pacific. Yeah. The Americans, I mean, not to belittle the men who fought in Europe, but the, the casualties were light in the Western Front. So, yeah. I mean, for all of it, for... It, it was war. It was hell of war everywhere, but the, the casualties being suffered in the Pacific were a little bit more extreme because you had uh, examples of tens of thousands dying in a single day and Yes, that would sell a paper, but that would also destroy the morale of the, the civilian That's population back That's at home. Point, yeah. Whereas you could be reporting about these um, European uh, victories, you know, Patton uh, uh, going through Africa and, oh, yeah, of course. you know, like the uh well the infamous attack. Like, uh, there, there was more glory to be had in in Europe and Africa and it sounded better on paper. The, the, there, there were more victories. The infamous uh, Sicily and Italian yeah. campaign. We're American. Yeah. We're, we're, we're Canadians. And actually, your grandfather served in uh, what was Sicily. Uh, my grandfather was Sicily, uh, Normandy, um, Holland. And uh, when it, for the Sicily and Italy campaign, us Canadians were the guys who got the, the worst job uh, in the mix. And we didn't get the credit. We didn't get any of the credit. And we were like, the first ones on uh, the shores. Yeah. We had to go through, what was it, the Sicily or, it I think was, it was in Sicily, we had to go through the middle, the hardest part yeah. of the campaign. Yeah. The British and the Americans got to go on the sides. With, uh, Montgomery and Patton's little race to get to the capital. Uh, and it was us Canadians who were actually yeah. fighting a lot of the hard battles. Breaking up their, I think there was, they had three defensive lines and like it was the Canadians that were the vanguard breaking them up. Yeah. By the way, I, mm, I can't talk about it, but I'm going to have to write a piece on that soon. Uh, in the end of summer i'm gonna have to do a piece on that so i might talk to you uh the last like i just said uh yeah last point number 10 uh it's a reminder of many failures i was just saying like the the casualties in the pacific the the barbarity of it the the gruesome nature of that warfare uh people don't want to talk about that people don't want to think about that they don't want to remember it yeah because unlike europe 
for I, I keep we keep I, I keep talking like in terms of America, but in terms of like what happened, they're in the Europe, biggest player for the you know the the Allies. So. Like if you think about terms of failures, when America is looking at the European War for World War Two, well, good. What what big failures did America have? Like there wasn't any huge blunders. When we talk about the Pacific, I mean, there are some blunders. Uh, first up, you could argue, well, the attack on Pearl Harbor was kind of a, an oversight. Absolutely an oversight. The uh, warnings that they had and uh, what they should have been observing. I mean, a lot of conspiracy nuts. Yeah, they, it's, it's, a, it's a whole discussion. Yeah, because a yeah. lot of conspiracy nuts. I remember doing, uh, I did, yeah. uh, I think it was grade 10 or grade 11. Uh, I did my... Um, uh, and this was an English class and I had to do, remember we used to have to do like speeches and stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. So for my speech, it was, uh, I believe my, my topic sentence was, uh, uh, why Pearl Harbor should have, um, why the Americans should have been aware that they were about to be attacked at Pearl Harbor. And there were so many like examples of mm. things that were happening the days beforehand, intelligence being handed over to the Americans that they knew it was coming. Yeah. But yeah. there's that conspiracy that the higher ups, Roosevelt, it's like, let it happen. Let it happen. Cause like, and you know, a lot of this conspiracy stuff occurs after 9 11 because it conveniently falls in well, line is, with that. Yeah. The, con- the convenient kind of like symbolism between the attack and 9 11 and all that. Anyways, not to go down that rabbit hole, but. Definitely, I think no one cannot admit that Pearl Harbor kind of has this kind of reeking symbolism of a bit of failures there. I think a better example uh, people might not know is uh, Douglas MacArthur in the Philippines. Biggest blunder in yes. the entire war, I'd say. Yeah. He unbelievably and yet he messed was that still up. one of the most respected commanders. Oh, uh, I know the people can't. Uh, the people in Kings and Generals are like, please shut the hell up about Douglas MacArthur because all I do, all I do on that bash, podcast bash is bash him. And, yeah. and I'm I'm gonna be honest with you, people, you, you small minority people watching this from Kings and Generals. I actually secretly love Douglas MacArthur as like kind of this quirky batshit character. He is kind of like Tommy Lee Joker. Jones. Tommy Lee Jones <laughs> plays Tommy. a good MacArthur. Oh, it was a good film. Yeah, yeah. it's a good film. It's a, not a lot of people have seen that film. Mm-hmm. It's not that popular. But uh, Douglas MacArthur is America's Caesar. He's a yeah. No one. Oh, yeah. Like they always say, there is no one. There is There's no, no one like no bigger prima donna. Like Patton was uh, up there as a prima donna. Oh, not like uh, well, yes, yes, yeah. He was absolutely a prima donna. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the same gun tooting kind of like you know that it would have been very interesting to see an exchange meet. between yeah them meet uh, I'm sure they post, they had but not in uh, probably briefly though because they were both yeah, on two wait, different wait, wait, sides wait. of the war no no and... no, no I know a story in um what was it World War One Patton was like a younger guy okay. and Douglas MacArthur was in command of something and he talked to Douglas MacArthur there's a famous quote between them I forget what the conversation was. But it was Patton was later talking in life about his first time meeting Douglas MacArthur and how Douglas MacArthur kind of just like disregarded him Ooh. or something. But uh, yeah, that would have been an interesting meeting. Let's say uh, they met in uh, you know 1946 or that if Patton hadn't died in 45. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't think they get along. Um, maybe they both be like, you know what? We don't need 50 nukes in China. We need a hundred. Oh my god. <laughs> you're right more nukes are better i mean you I, know, I, douglas MacArthur's douglas MacArthur. 
But uh, anyway, no, I don't think Patton would have resorted to nukes because he wasn't in that theater where those were used. Oh, where Patton. MacArthur was. I, I think if you threw Patton in I, the well, theater, I think, he'd be like, "What is this?" I think <laughs> Patton would be like, "Okay, why aren't we dropping nukes on the Soviets yet?" Patton, you know. Okay, but now point, we're yeah. now we're on a tangent. No, no, you have but... a good point. Patton would be the first guy to throw nukes on the Soviets. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't understand. We're not done this war. We just took Germany. No, let's keep going. Let's have another nice little war. <laughs> Oh, fuck. Uh, uh, you know, Singapore for the British, uh, Singapore and well, Malaya for that example, for f- the whole Malayan campaign is a, a huge disaster. And it was unbelievable. It's embarrassing as hell. How the pro- okay, I'm not gonna say the performance of the men who fought, but the commanders misjudged the Japanese and it played right into the Japanese hands. Yamashita ran a train on them, but uh, the Philippines and the Malaya campaign were it's it's embarrassing moment for the allies, unlike in Europe where. Sure, you could say uh, the Dunkirk situation was mm. a little bit of a blunder, but it, I don't think it has the same flavor. I think a bigger issue when it comes to the Pacific War is two major ones at the end. Uh, well, we already talked about the nuclear bombs that went over, which there is an embarrassing kind of failure yeah. element to that. And then the loss of China. And people be like, well, that's not part of the Pacific War. That's the Chinese Civil War. And that's the China War after. But I'm like, it, it is part of this. The, the loss of China has a lot to do with stuff that happened in the Pacific War. And to this to this day, it's it's still felt. The idea that China was like this number one ally, they were being backed, and mm-hmm. that somehow, uh, like, it, this is particularly felt by the Americans, that they had lost China. Yeah. And it's kind of the byproduct at the end of the Pacific War that besmirches it all in the end, where it's it's kind of like we fought this war, we neutralized Japan, we neutralized uh, Germany, Italy, and all that, and then everything went to shit. Yeah, and it, it went to shit in a time where everything was going so great for Germany, Japan, and them. It's like the, we we don't want to do what happened in World War One. We're not going to stamp on these people and cause another war draw draw new maps out we're we're going to rebuild and we're going to help these people and we're going to try and stop wars from happening but then the civil war in china gets out of hand america gets involved with the rest of the un and all that and the korea war happens later and it's this like disgusting affair that really like puts a bad taste in everybody's mouth because it pisses off the soviet union it pisses off china obviously well, now we're going into, you know, you the, know, the war of, you know, communism versus democracy. It, it, yeah, and, the Cold and, War is occurring. Yeah. And it, it's it's the end. But it was a hot war in, yeah. in China. Uh, but I, I found that uh, in my head, I don't know, it came to me. I just, I think the loss of China really put a nail in talking about the Pacific War because for the Pacific War, a lot of it was glorifying Chiang Kai-shek's mm. nationalist government and, like, they're a great ally, and now this great ally switched on them. Kind yeah, of, so. I, I suppose you could think of it as a defeat. That your, defeat, your yeah. ally lost, and, you know, the, the national powers of, uh, of China and had to flee to Taiwan. Oh, great, we just said the T-word. Uh-huh. Well, I guess, no, sorry, I, I meant little China. This ain't appearing in mainland China. <laughs> Jokes. It, it doesn't, so that's, yeah, that doesn't happen. But uh, yeah, my God, that was a top 10 list. And uh, well, we're like six beers down. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I, mean, I think we kind of need it because this was a very morbid conversation. Uh, I got worse than I thought I would. Uh, well, and with, I the subject, with the subject matter, it's hard to uh, tiptoe around it. Yeah. And uh, for, for those of you in the audience, you know, 
give more questions as to what you want to watch because as you can see i'm answering questions and i got a god i don't have it here right now i have a top 50 list at this point of questions from uh, a lot from the kings and generals uh, group and a lot of them quite interesting um i have questions from my own youtube channel and uh, just general topics that we wanted to tackle i mean the one we did last time with uh, what would happen if the japanese won the battle midway yeah that, that, that was a fun exciting one that's to do. that what's well, an easy one everyone yeah. like that's a locker room talking point you know um, well, um, well i mean then i would love to tackle this subject uh sometime soon uh something involving uh the battle of letty golf oh if we're, japanese, we're getting close to it if the japanese actually like did well well i mean they did they did well but well uh well let's imagine okay and then here's a scenario uh because the whole point of letty golf was the japanese main battle uh, surface fleet was going after the american landing forces that were landing in the philippines and they were this close to hitting them and it would have been a hundred thousand american uh, marines killed on ships it could have changed everything i think it's going to prolong prolong <laughs> but uh the my my argument would be like uh morale would absolutely take a oh, dip it would back have home shit. The, the civilian Oof. population would be like no we're not fighting this anymore that's too much oh, wow. it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting one so many people don't but there were so them. many moving parts in that battle because it is the largest naval battle in human history not just world war ii history but human history yeah uh, the the amount of pieces on that board like it's a, a very intricate battle uh, uh, plan and yes there's many blunders from the Japanese uh, but their intelligence wasn't not not their intelligence but their intelligence network did not have the uh, the foresight of what the Americans were were doing but that's the fog of war yeah. so like maybe we can do a discussion of let's remove the fog of war oh my god so letty golf go like best case scenario for the japanese kind of situation yeah. oh that's gonna be oof. it's gonna yeah. be rough that's that's a lot of american losses yeah all uh, right yeah and uh so yeah please like and subscribe and leave your comments because as you can see we're trying to tackle them one at a time and uh Keep following me on the Pacific War Channel week by week over Kings and Generals. There's a lot of cool stuff coming up there. I got some special interviews coming up with some really cool guys. I got a former Marine who's living in Guadalcanal. That's going to be an interesting one. He has a lot to say about the uh, Battle of Bloody Ridge. Wow. So it's been the Pacific War Channel. Please don't put too many hate comments <laughs> over and out. Have a good one, everyone.